Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome to The Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, my co-hosts. And then our special guest for today, so Dr. Stephen Loftus. Um, a lot to get to on this episode because not only have we updated our top 30 prospect list, it was originally published in March, uh, but we're also going to get into a little bit of the 2021 draft, take a very, very early look at some of the players the Orioles could consider uh, next June. Uh, starting off, though, with the top 30 prospect list that was uh, published on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com on Thursday morning. Uh, Nick Stevens wrote the reports, did an excellent job once again. Um, one thing to note is that all six players selected by the Orioles in this year's draft are on the list. Uh, we're going to mainly focus on them in this show and explain how they fit into the system and how they compare to players that were on the list. Uh, previously. So, Nick, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on this list compared to the one we did in March? Better or worse or about the same? Yeah, I think it's a lot better. Um, I think overall, you know, when we start to see these new prospect rankings come out uh, later on, uh, when you talk about overall organizational ranks, I think we're going to see the Orioles climb just a little bit. Um, You know, I don't think they're probably not going to be a top 10 organizational system right now, uh, but I definitely think you're going to see them inch a little bit closer like you said, all six guys we've got in our top 30. Um, I think as of right now, Servideo, Anthony Servideo has not signed, and Mayo and Baumler haven't officially signed, but their reports are saying that they will. But we went ahead and included all six guys because I think Servideo will, will sign for less than, was it, $1.2 million they have left in the, in the bank. But, yeah, I think overall the system is – the draft did what it was supposed to do, and it made the system better. Any thoughts there, Bob? I completely agree with Nick. I mean, I thought our top 30 was looking pretty good already, and then you can push out the bottom six into honorable mentions. Uh, we can go 40 deep now with guys that have at least potential to play in the major leagues. And, uh, yeah, you got a guy, new guy in the top 10, some new guys in the middle, and then a couple guys at the bottom. More depth is always a good thing. Didn't really lose anything. So, yeah, I'm positive on it. So, Stephen, you covered the draft for us. Um, did you think that the draft resulted in a stronger farm system? No question. I mean, adding Kerstad is an excellent grab for the uh, for the uh, farm system, even though uh, there might have been some players who were more highly ranked than him available at two. It allowed us to get a, um, a good number of high-ceiling guys, uh, guys like Kobe Mayo, guys like Carter Baumler. All of these guys were made possible because of adding Kerstad. And the ceilings on guys like Baumer and Mayo especially, they have the potential to even possibly rise up. So in our rankings here, we have them in the lower half of the system. Well, Mayo's right on the edge of that upper half, but Mayo has a chance to be a top 10 guy if he can access his power. And uh, Baumler has the easy chance to get into the 10 to 15 range if the uh, player development system is able to 
help bring him forward as they have so many pitchers in the past year for this team. So we'll start right there with Carter Baumler, who comes onto the list at number 27. Uh, that puts him one spot ahead of another right-handed pitcher, Cody Sedlock, and one behind utility man Ryland Bannon. Um, Stephen, what is your what are your thoughts on Baumler? Uh, seems like there's a high upside with him, but also like he's a pretty raw prospect too. Any high school pitcher, especially one that's not taken in the first round, is going to be a raw prospect. And yes, his fastball isn't as powerful as you'd maybe like to see, but through weighted ball programs, things along those lines, teams are able to add so much velocity to um, young arms. And Ballmer seems to have a young arm, good, clean mechanics. Doesn't have a worry that um, his mechanics are going to really push him immediately into the pen. So adding a few miles per hour, he can jump up the system real, sorry, up the system's rankings real, real fast. So, Nick, what have your um, impressions been in researching Baltimore a little bit and then writing up his report? Yeah, kind of a lot of the same stuff. You know, he seems to already have, based on the reports, you know, I don't watch a lot of Iowa high school baseball, but based on all the reports, he seems to have a good control of a, a three-pitch mix, uh, three potential plus or above, above average pitches. Um, you know, the frame's there to add a few miles per hour, like Steven said. Uh, he seemed like a really athletic kid. I think he played football as like a, an All-American football player in high school. Uh, I think he could have played football. I think it was like kicker punter. Uh, but still, they're, they're football players too, I guess. Um, at the college level, I think he was committed to TCU. And I think a lot of teams, I think I saw where as many as three teams offered him over a million dollars to sign. And it, it took the Orioles coming in, and he agreed to sign with the Orioles for I think the one big reason why he signs with the Orioles is because this is a system that he knows he could probably get in um you know Mike Elias and this new player development program seem to have positive there seems to be positive vibes surrounding this with a lot of these younger prospects and I think he knows he can get into the system and rise up pretty quickly uh or at least you know cut it at least in the beginning as a starting pitching prospect and so you know, like you said, he's really raw. He's only 18, um, but we'll see how he does once we finally get the chance to see him play live. He might be 22 by the time baseball comes back. Yeah. But, uh, no, I like his potential because he's, he's already seems like he has three usable pitches. He's already touching 92, 93, and he's got a good frame to add good weight, add some velocity, refine his pitches and his control. And, yeah, he'll just join the list of arms like Drew Rahm, all these younger guys who – they have potential if they can make the adjustments that they need to make. So up next on the list um, for players that were drafted in 2020 is Anthony Servideo, who ranks 25th, uh, one spot ahead of Bannon, and then one spot behind Kyle Bradis, a right-handed pitcher the Orioles acquired over the offseason in, in the trade with the Angels that sent Dylan Bundy to Los Angeles. Um, Stephen, when we were talking about this list, one of the things you pointed out with Servideo was his walk rate. Um, why do you think that caught the Orioles' attention, and what do you think it says about his potential offensively? So, especially for college players, one of the main uh, drivers or predictors of being able to even just get to the major leagues, which for any prospect is an accomplishment and provides value to the team, walk rate is a huge deal. And Servideo does walk. He has walked against some of the hardest college pitching down in the Southeastern Conference. In some ways, he kind of reminds me of uh, Taylor Walls from the 2017 draft, um, who's in the Rays system. And many people are projecting that uh, 
Walls could be breaking out this year. And I think I'm higher on Servideo than most. I had him even uh, right at number 15 on my personal list because I believe a little bit more in the breakout and I especially believe in his ability to play shortstop and contribute real value at shortstop as well as his ability to get on base and select and uh, have very good uh, pitch selection at the plate. You know, one as we were discussing this, we ultimately you know went ahead and we put Stravideo ahead of Bannon, even though they're kind of I think they're not similar players at all, but both right now I think could reasonably be projected as role players. The one thing that it did come back to though was Stravideo's overall athleticism. Um, Steven, do you think that with the speed and the defense, Stravideo could still provide some major league value, even if the bat doesn't quite come along? Absolutely. I mean. Scouts are regarding him as one of the best defensive shortstops in all of college baseball, and that does have value. Even beyond that, as a shortstop, he represents at least some positional flexibility, but I fully believe that he's going to stick at shortstop. And again, even if the bat isn't a 280-15 home run bat, if you're getting you know 260, 10, 10 to 15 home runs out of him and plus defense at shortstop, there's value. There is major value there. So, Nick, I'll ask you this. The Orioles, we have seen them take kind of a defense-heavy approach with short stops in the past, whether that's drafting guys like Caden Grenier and Mason McCoy, would kind of come to mind as two examples. What about Servideo separates him from prospects in that line? Yeah, I think it's I think the defense is just a step above some of these guys we already have in the system. Uh, like Stephen pointed out, the walk rate. I think this year... The small sample size, shortened season, but this year only 17 games, but he walked 24 times this year uh, in 87 plate appearances. And, you know, a lot of these numbers, his earlier numbers maybe weren't that great, but you know, even other guys like Eric Longenhagen, I think he was one of the few kind of national writers that was also really high on Servideo. I think he said the breakout was real uh, in his report when, when talking about Servideo. Um, you look at other guys shortstop prospects like this in system like Mason McCoy you know how much can he really produce with the bat uh, the glove is great I think the gloves are majorly ready for a very long time with Mason McCoy but how much is he really going to give you at the plate um, other than you know singles doubles he can turn doubles into triples as well but you know you're talking across the full season he might hit five home runs even in the juice ball era um, a guy like Richie I come I'm comparing Servideo to also guys like Richie Martin uh, early on, like how much of the, the bat are we going to get from Richie Martin? Uh, and I think just based on, on the video there, I think if Servideo has a better glove than all of these guys, then he, he's an upgrade. So, I, again, the, the draft did what it was supposed to do, and we upgraded a lot of positions. That athleticism, maybe he can play the outfield as well. Um, I think that's one thing that I like about having him ranked just above Bannon is, you know, I don't know if Bannon's more of an outfielder. Uh, I don't know if he can move into the outfield as much, but you know, he can play second base and third base, but Servideo may be able to move into the outfield if you need him to in a pinch. So, you know, if the glove is truly that elite, then, you know, and you're going to, if and the bat does break out, you're going to find somewhere in the field for him. Keep drafting. I, I wrote this on the board. Keep drafting those athletic shortstops and you'll find a place for him eventually. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, to me, from what I, based on what I've read, he's immediately ahead of guys like McCoy, Grenier, maybe even Richie Martin. And if that breakout that he had so far this year in college is for real and he can carry that over, then he maybe can be a little bit more, maybe a fringe starter at shortstop or a pretty good utility player. I think we got him in the right spot. 
Now moving uh, up the list, we're going to go with the next 2020 draftee that is on there. Um, Hudson Haskin, outfielder out of Tulane, chosen in the second round. He comes in 20th on our list, one ahead of Zach Pop, who I think all four of us are pretty high on, but Pop coming off the Tommy John surgery has not pitched uh, this year, obviously, because no one has. So we still have questions about his recovery. And then one spot behind Ryan McKenna, who is 19th. And we're going to get into the what we see as a separation between McKenna and Haskin in a moment. But, Stephen, I want to start with you. Um, there have been a lot of concerns about Haskin's swing, um, even though he did put up some strong numbers at Tulane. Why do you think those concerns are there? And if you're the Orioles, is it something you're going to focus on early in his development to try to iron it, smooth it out a little bit? Not, I, I wouldn't rush too much to necessarily changing his swing because you know his swing has worked for him for a long time and has taken him to a D1 college school and has seen him produce at a D1 college school. I would like to see it against pro arms before they, you know, before they start tinkering with his swing, and that is probably uh, the route that most teams go. Give players a chance to essentially fail with the tools that they bring um, on their own. And then if that failure comes, you know, if success, if success comes, just leave it be and keep on working there. But if failure comes, that's when you start making those adjustments. That said, I do think those swing concerns are real. I am a little lower on Haskin uh, than most. I have him, I think, on my list about 26 on, amongst the prospects because of that worry. If he had put up those numbers again against, you know, SEC pitching or even ACC pitching, I would feel a little bit better. But uh, Tulane, you know, it's not the top, top tier competition, but it is still D1 competition. He still put up numbers. But that said, there are still some questions there um, just within that swing that I would like to see ironed out specifically either through performance in pro ball or through, the, again, the player development program. Now, Bob, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had McKenna ahead of Haskin on your personal list, right? Yeah, slightly ahead of him. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where we all ended, we ended up settling. What was the difference maker for you between McKenna and Haskin? It was pretty close. To me, I, w I like to be a little bit conservative when I'm bringing in the new guys into the system on the list because you can always move them up. That's my motto if they prove it with performance or with uh, newer scouting looks. But to me, as of right now, McKenna, he's just he's got a, a higher floor to me. He's just good defense in center field. He's blazing fast. He has shown a good hit tool in the past. It's been lacking a little bit in the past season in a half or so. And Haskin has better power and more over, like an all-around game. But to me, I just went with the, the lower floor. I mean, sorry, higher floor for now, even if Haskins has the higher, higher ceiling. So, Nick, you noted this in March when you originally wrote McKenna's report and mentioned it again um, with the most recent update that he needs to kind of get back to more of a line drive approach. What have you noticed um, with him in his more recent return since that breakout at Frederick, where he struggled a little bit at the plate? And once he does get back to playing, whether that's in a taxi squad environment or in games next year, what's the Orioles do to get him back to that line drive approach? 
Yeah, I think that's what I think a lot of people have kind of soured on McKenna a little bit. And, and understandably, I think if you're just looking at some of the numbers and he had such a big breakout year in the Arizona Fall League and with the Frederick Keys, and then he goes to Bowie and the numbers really aren't there. But still, last year, I, when you look at his fly ball rate, jumped from like 27, 28% up to like 40% last year in Bowie. So it's almost like maybe the Orioles were saying, hey, let's you, you've got that power in the bat. Maybe let's let's see what you can do uh, against double A pitching. You know, the Eastern League was pretty stacked with elite pitching prospects last year. I felt like every time I watched a Bowie Bay Sox game, they were playing against Erie going against one of those Detroit Tigers top pitching prospects. And offense was down across the whole league. And McKenna still put up a WRC plus of 104 last year. He still had a walk rate over 10%. Um, it was just that big spike in, in fly ball rate. Maybe, it, you know, I, obviously I, I don't know what's going on in the clubhouse, but maybe they say, let's try the power out. Let's try it and see what you can do this year. If not, we'll go back to the old way, more a line drive approach. Um, use that speed. You know, we haven't really seen the speed on the base paths. You see in the outfield, but it hasn't really translated to stolen bases yet. Um, but, you know, when you see that walk rate, when you, when you see the production, it's, it's still there. Um, maybe... If we go back to that line drive rate, something will click for McKenna and, and he'll climb back up and get in people's good graces again. I don't know if he's a starting outfielder uh, in the future for the Orioles, but he's still someone that can provide a lot of value, I think, in a, as a fourth or fifth outfielder uh, at the major league level. Um, you know, again, like we talked about walk rate, I'm a sucker for walk rate too. And especially when you're talking about Orioles prospects and it doesn't seem like any Oriole can just take four pitches. And, and McKenna did a good job of that. So. I'm still going to be high on him. I, I like having him just above Haskin as well, just because of that potential uh, for McKenna. And, and Haskin, there seems to be a, a lot more risk there, even though I think it was MLB Pipeline said a potential five-tool player in Haskin. I don't know how to watch a lot of two-lane baseball. Uh, we can see. Um, maybe we have the baseball Brit in our good graces. He's a two-lane guy. That was his American college he adopted. Um, maybe we can bring him on the show and ask ask him about that. But, you know... Um, yeah, I like McKenna still. Um, hopefully, hopefully next year is a little bit better. Twenty twenty one is a little bit better. Stephen, what have your impressions on McKenna been during his time in the farm system? This past year was rough on him a little bit, but even as a you know quote unquote rough year, I mean, he's twenty three years old. Well, was he even twenty three last year? I say he's twenty three. Yeah, he was twenty older. Twenty two, second time in double A ball, and. You know, it didn't quite go as well as the uh, um, a, as in the low A, but still, I mean, he put up above average league uh, league offensive profile there. I think there's absolutely a chance that it turns around. He can absolutely play center field. He can absolutely move. I mean, 25 stolen bases is a large number in today's game. So, I mean, we're seeing some of the speed there. We're seeing some of the outfield defense. If he's your best outfielder, you're probably in trouble. If he's your third or fourth best outfielder, either you know platooning in or um, a lower seventh, eighth guy in the lineup, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So we'll move up the list now to number 12, and that's where Kobe Mayo comes in. Uh, high upside third baseman taken out of Stoneman Douglas High School in the fourth round this year. He places one spot ahead of Zach Lothar, who comes in at 13th, and one spot behind Jordan Westberg, a fellow 2020 draftee that we will discuss in a moment. Um, but I'm going to ask Steven first. The one thing that we keep hearing about with Mayo is the power. Just how good is that power? But then what else What else in his game needs to be developed um, as he moves through the farm system? The power is 
pretty special for a high schooler. I mean, he's a he's a big dude. We're looking 6'5", 215, plus power, at least plus raw power. Game power is a different sort of thing. Um, it all depends on whether he's going to be able to access it because he doesn't have a ton of like swing and miss in his swing in his uh, in his profile but there's enough there to make you wonder okay is it gonna slightly uh you know instead of being plus power is it going to be just slightly above average power sort of thing in terms of game power there will always be plus raw power there and there there might even be more as he continues to grow i mean once again 18 and a half six foot five 215 he is a big dude and to a certain extent He's the guy that we're partially betting the draft on. He's the guy who got the overslot deal. He's the guy that if he develops into the powerful guy that he can be, this draft can be absolutely a winner. Because I think, you know, we're going to talk about Kerstad and he's going to, you know, Kerstad's going to perform and I think will be a major league player. But if we um, underslotted, uh, Kerstad to be able to get these other players and they don't play, pay off, that's where things go awry. We bet a lot on Kobe Mayo. I don't think it's a bad bet. Honestly, of the options there, um, it's one of the better bets that we could have made, especially by that point in the draft. But there are still enough questions that might make you just the tiniest bit worried. You, know, you talked about you know how there are some questions with Mayo, and I should point out that there are a lot of experienced arms that come in behind Mayo on this list. Because I mentioned Lothar at 13, but then you have Keegan Aiken at 14. Hunter Harvey, who's probably going to graduate pretty early in the 2020 MLB season, comes in 15. And then Adam Hall, who has been in the Orioles system for a few years, coming off a nice year at Delmarva, slid back to 16th uh, with the selection of Mayo. Bob, what do you think is the separation between Mayo and those prospects and why we are higher on him at this point than we are players who might have safer floor, probably have higher floors and are further along and are further along in their development. He's just the guy you can dream on. I mean, he's the guy that you can imagine in your head two, three years from now, if development goes right, that he's like this 40 home run potential guy. If he taps into his raw power and get get it into games, um, it's the guy that you get him in the fourth round but he has potential first-round talent inside if you can if you can get it out of him. And if he can stick at third base, he's got the arm to do it. I mean, this is a guy you just sit at the hot corner, let him hit 30, 40 bombs, and play good defense. I mean, that's, that's something any team would want. Whereas these other guys, I mean, yeah, they can have a lot of a good role, especially Harvey. He could end up being a closer. But to, like Adam Hall... You just can't see him being a potential superstar at the major league level. Where I mean, yeah, it's still a long shot, even with the power and the raw skills that Mayo has, but you can dream on him reaching that level. Any thoughts, Nick? Yeah, I think when we were putting this list together, uh, kind of like Bob said, Mayo's ceiling there, really, that was really the deciding factor with us. Um, Zach Lowther, we kind of, I think overall, we kind of view him maybe more as a bullpen piece. Uh, Keegan Aiken, we're kind of iffy on still. Is he a back of the rotation arm? Is he a starter? Um, Hunter Harvey, you know, there's still the injury concerns. That was only one year. Last year was just one year, past what, six, seven years. 
that he was fully healthy. And, and even then, he didn't make it the whole year. The Orioles shut him down a little bit early uh, because he started feeling a little bit in his arm. So as exciting as he is and as beautiful as that mullet is, like we, we just don't know. Like if Is he going to hold up as much as I hope he does? That was one of the top special moments last year is watching him finally take them out of the major league uniform. Um, Drew Rahm, I think, is someone that is really exciting as well. I think that's someone, uh, if you're looking at a list of prospects who this year could have been a huge year just as far as finally the conversation, there's more conversation about them, I think Drew Rahm is one of those names. Um Lefty, again, a guy who gets a lot of strikeouts last year, part of that amazing Delmarva staff. Uh, but again, still a lot of questions there. And like you said with Adam Hall, like we, we just don't know, I guess. I think um, Hall is a guy that I'm waiting to see more against, more advanced pitching, see how he does. But yeah, Mayo with that ceiling and that power, you know, he's already touching exit velocities according to you know perfect game profiles I wrote in the article. It's like 105 miles an hour. You know, it could be higher. I, I don't know, but that's the one number that I saw. And that's pretty darn good for an 18-year-old kid. So, again, it kind of fits the mold of a lot of these bats that Michael Elias drafted. Guys are just drill the ball. They barrel the baseball. And so and now it's up to that player development system. Yeah, and I'll note that Drew Rahm came in 17th, um, one spot behind Hall and then one spot ahead of Kyle Stowers, who the Orioles chose out of Stanford last year. Um, Steven, I want to get your thoughts on Mayo's defense. We hear a lot about the arm. But when you look at his size, it obviously leads to a lot of questions about whether or not he sticks at third base in the long run. So I really have a two-part question, which is, do you think he can stick at third? And if not, where could he go? That's a tough one. Um, most scouts are ultimately saying that, I mean, he's got the arm. That That's not even a question. Plus arm, great carry on the ball, all that sort of thing. Footwork and hands are a little little touchy because you know third baseman they got to cut off the ball in the five and a half hole sort of thing um cut off the ball in short in front of the shortstop sort of deal um now i don't think he immediately has to go to first base because that's you know that's the worst case scenario becomes just a first well that's not the worst case worst case scenario would become becoming a dh but i don't think he has to go to either first or dh just right off there is a chance that he could absolutely go out to right field you know where that arm could possibly carry um but that said they absolutely should try him out at third give him the chance because um a third baseman with 40 home runs is uh, worth a fair bit more than either of a right fielder or a first baseman with 40. So I, you worked with the Tampa Bay Rays, um, Stephen, and I want to, when you're looking at players' development on defense, when do you know that it's the right time to move them? Or when do you finally know, okay, he's got the position down, we can stick with him there? I don't think you ever know that they have the position down. It's a tough question about knowing when it's the right time to move because it really depends on the person because so many of them, you know, someone goes out and makes 20 errors in their opening, uh, you know, opening experience in rookie ball and they work hard over the winter and next thing you know, they're, you know, down to five errors and they're moving, they've increased their range and they still have the confidence to be able to do that. Other, pe- I say, other people aren't going to be able to make that adjustment. It's a constantly influx scenario. Orioles should at least, you know, if this were a normal year, I'd say absolutely get him out there in rookie ball, let him take his lumps, who cares how many errors he makes. It's fine. And I would even say at least give him uh, another at least half season at third in 2021 if this were a normal year. That said, it's going to be hard to know because 
the evaluation opportunities are going to be so much less. Who knows if the Arizona Fall League is going to happen? Who knows how much chance coaches are going to be able to see and work with him? That said, they should at least, I would say, give him a solid season to just see if he can develop it unless there is some overwhelming reason that the coaches just don't think he can hack it. So we'll just have to see. So we'll move up the list now to the next spot. Uh, Jordan Westberg, shortstop out of Mississippi State, taken with that first-round comp A pick, which was 30th overall. Um, SEC player, and this is definitely the type of profile that Michael Elias loves, SEC, high floor. Um, Steven, we note, Nick's report notes some of the, I guess, pluses and minuses in Westberg's profile. Um, we know the ceiling is high. But where do you think his floor is if things don't completely pan out? If things don't completely pan out, he's going to strike out 20 to 25% of the time, hit 250, at worst 240. But he'll still, um, well, if he's hitting 240, he's probably only hitting 10 to 15 home runs a year. And then you've got to rely on defense, which he's not an elite defender, but he does well enough the type that decent chance he could get moved off the position especially if uh some others in the system such as you know Servideo if the bat develops um they could you could easily see Westberg getting pushed off the uh, position for Servideo in that way that's the floor I don't think I say and that's the worst case um or worst case floor even I'd say that said I think he has a least a decent shot of reaching his ceiling he at least even if he's not going to hit he will still have the speed he'll still have some pop in the bat and um, can still at least be serviceable at a few infield positions at, again in the worst case scenario so nick what were your impressions of uh westberg uh, as you wrote up the report yeah just that that same profile we've been talking about the sec bat he successful out in the cape cod league so with the wooden bat that's something you like to see as well with a lot of these college guys um high on base percentage i think this year he had a 432 on base percentage this year before the shutdown and the the one thing though that does scare me is there's lots of talk about this power but you know, he only had i think 10 um home runs in his college career so again will that power develop i mean playing at camden yards he's in a good ballpark for that but um and I also think I remember around draft time, right after the draft, I think he had one of the highest exit velocities in college baseball last year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, again, just a guy that can mash the baseball and athletic enough where um, if you have to move him off position, like Stephen was talking about, uh, maybe he can find a home at second base. Uh, but, you know, again, I'm fine with these low, these high floor guys right now. Again, when you compare him to the other guys we have in the system, is he better than a lot of those guys? I think yes. You know, is he better than the Mason McCoys and uh, Caden Greniers and all those guys? Yes. Uh, so again, it's getting him in the system and, and see what happens. I'm not worried about the strikeouts right now. Um, say the same thing about Heston Kerstad. I don't care about strikeout numbers unless they're like something outrageous because that's that's baseball right now. But we'll see as he climbs up the system what what those strikeout numbers look like. But now, we, we put Westberg pretty high on our list, but we also held off on putting him in the top 10. We stuck with Michael Ballman, uh, kept him inside the top 10. Uh, Bob, what do you think about putting Ballman 10th compared to Westberg at 11th? Yeah, I I like Ballman's potential. I still I think he showed enough improvement last season to give him the benefit of the doubt that he could 
at least be uh, like a mid-rotation starter as the ceiling. He guy throws the ball hard. Seems like he's got the right attitude on the mound, and he's got some secondary pitches that he can work with. So, yeah, I just think his ceiling is higher, and he's proven it at a high higher minor leagues level already. Whereas Westberg, I like him. He's a guy that he he can hit the ball hard. He's got that raw power potential. Hasn't exactly got it in the games yet, but it, the potential is there. But I just I don't see him sticking at shortstop long term. I see him more of a second baseman if he makes it to the majors. And and yeah, I just think he's just a, a tick below Bauman. But with Hayes likely graduating this season, Hunter Harvey, and I could see him being in a top ten, but this time next year. Yeah, then. That is one thing I do want to note. Austin Hayes and Hunter Harvey are probably going to be the first two players to graduate on this list, provided Major League Baseball is able to get um, the season underway and complete it. Um, maybe a few other players that are on the list now do graduate, but those two seem the most likely uh, to lose their prospect status at some point during the season. Um, I'm going to move up the list now to number four. Heston Kerstad, who the Orioles took with the second overall pick. Uh, he comes in one spot behind D.L. Hall and one spot ahead of Ryan Mountcastle. Steven, uh, can you give us a little bit of background on Kerstad and why you think the Orioles went with him with that number two pick, aside from the signing a guy below slot value angle? Well, aside from, yes, that obvious fact. The Orioles in these last couple of drafts have seemingly developed a general focus that works for them. Getting guys that have loud tools, loud power potential. Don't worry about the strikeouts, especially college guys who are going to have more data on them to be able to evaluate that sort of power potential and then let the player development system do their job. And they put a lot of trust in that player development system, as any front office hopefully should. So Kerstad fits that profile to a T. He competed against, the again, the best college conference in the SEC, and he, in his time there, put up numbers. Was hitting home runs, you know, he's 36 home runs in his three years at Arkansas. Yes, he's striking out, you know, striking out somewhere along the lines of the upper teens, um, close to 20%, and he's not walking a ton. He's, you know, walking around 8% of the time, but he is hitting. The hit tool is there, the power is there, and there are some that honestly believe that next to Spencer Torkelson, he is the best. He was the best bat in the draft, all things considered. So, that's something that honestly, you can absolutely see the Orioles betting on and absolutely understand why they did, especially given their particular strategy of trying to go for these higher ceiling high school individuals along the lines of Kobe Mayo and Baumler later on. I will note that we ended up uh, sticking with D.L. Hall in that top three spot. Um, even though Hall is obviously not on the mound this year, we felt like that was the better prospect. Um, you know, he should remain in the top three over Kerstad. Um, Nick, what do you think about Hall, even though we're not seeing him pitch this year? What makes him a better prospect at this point than Kerstad? Yeah, I think he's he's at least already shown that he can have success at, at 
higher levels. Uh, he's a lefty that throws in the upper 90s. I mean, yes, it's that walk rate is, is scary, and those walks may never come down. Uh, and that's what makes him kind of the, I think, the wild card at the top of this prospect list. You know, I've seen... I've seen some that believe he his ceiling may be higher than that of Grayson Rodriguez, maybe just by a touch, um, and I would tend to agree with that. Uh, but his floor and the risk is also way bigger. The floor is a lot lower, and the risk is way greater with D.L. Hall. But I think this is someone, again, another pitcher who can hold that velocity very deep in the outings. A lot of strikeouts, a lot of movement on his pitches. He, he's got the attitude that I like in a pitcher. He's going to go on the mound, and he knows he's better than you, and he's ready to show it. Um, I thought it was interesting that I know we put up a poll up on the Twitter account and kind of said, where would Orioles fans rank Heston Kerstad? And we had about 52, 55 votes, and 21% of people said third, um, which I, you know, that I, I don't know. I, I can't see putting him ahead of D.L. Hall right now. Uh, 44% of people had him at fourth like we did, and then 21% again had him at fifth, which if you want to flip him between him and Ryan Mountcastle, I would be fine with, uh, but you know, I think we settled on putting him above Ryan Mountcastle. For me, it was because the defense and that power potential. You know, you got a left-handed hitter playing most of your games at Camden Yards, Fenway Park, Yankee Stadium with that kind of power. Um, that's scary, in my opinion. So we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I really struggled with the Mountcastle Kerstad because to me, there's not much separating the two right now. Um, the strongest argument for Mountcastle is that not only has he had success professionally, he generally has gotten a little bit better at each level and has often been on the younger and younger than most of his competition at that level. Um, there were two things, though, and Nick touched on this, that ultimately made me go ahead with Kerstad at four. Left-handed power, um, especially how it's going to play in Candom Yards. And the defense, I'm just a little bit more certain that Kerstad could stick at a corner outfield spot. Um, whereas with Mountcastle, I would like to see the Orioles try left field, but I don't know if it's going to work. If it doesn't work there, it's going to have to be first base, I think. Um, Bob, what did you think about sort of the difference between Kerstad and Mountcastle? The margin was razor thin for me. I ultimately have Kerstad at five on my list, just behind Mountcastle, but... Ask me tomorrow, I might change my mind. To me, Kerstad has the power edge over Mountcastle. Mountcastle has the hit tool edge, but they're both guys that can rake the ball. Neither walks a lot, but uh, Kerstad probably looks like Barry Bonds compared to Mountcastle the way he doesn't barely walk at all. Um, yeah, you love that left-handed power. I saw, I think it was Jim Callis said plus-plus power. Uh Elias, he just, he seems to love that that power bat out of an SEC conference, and that's what Kerstad is. I I think Mountcastle is going to probably graduate sometime next year, so it's pretty much a moot point. But I could see Kerstad passing him up this year or early next year if this was a, a normal season. But yeah. for me, right now, I went with the safety in Mountcastle, who has performed at the upper minors already. Yeah, I think it's weird that just not weird. I can understand it, but you know, so many Orioles fans seem to be against the pick and against Kerstad, which I understand why. And then when Baseball America comes out with their top 100 rankings right after the draft, and he's number 99, and I think you know, we put that on the Twitter account, and the first response from somebody was, "Where is Austin Martin at?" And you see he's 16, 
and you're like, uh, I, I get why a lot of Orioles fans are like, well, there were like, what, 12, 11, 12 other 2020 draft picks ranked ahead of Kershad in Baseball America's ranking. But, you know, we're talking about a list. We put all this time and energy into making a list. But, like, Kershtag is a baseball player. He's a really good baseball player. And so I, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I, I'm upset there's no baseball this year in, in that terms. Because I think if Orioles fans would have watched him at Delmarva or Aberdeen this year and seen him in person, they'd be a little starstruck. And they'd be like, all right, I'm down with this. I can get on board with the Kershtag trade. Steven, um, there were some signs of improvement with Kerstad at Arkansas. Um, obviously, we have no way of knowing how whether or not that would have stuck. But do you think that the Orioles saw enough in that sample size to figure out we like him just a little bit better than everybody else does? Absolutely. Um, we have to remember, all we ultimately generally see as fans is the performance, the actual slash line, the strikeout rate, walk rate, and what teams have access to, the information that teams have access to, even, um, even in a small sample size, exit velocities, launch angle, all of this stuff is available for college players. And you can determine a lot about players from a small sample on those with that information and if the team saw an uptick in that if the team saw an uptick in uh, pitch in uh, selectivity at the plate in terms of the pitches that he was swinging at and not swinging at driving versus not driving it doesn't take much and there was absolutely enough time for the Orioles to see an improvement that they were willing to bet on what do you think he pro what do you think his profile defensively looks like I think he's a right fielder like Full stop. I think, I think he has enough to stick in right field. I don't think he will have to go to first base. He has a solid enough arm. Um, you know, don't expect much out there, but I think he has enough to stick out in right field um, and not have to necessarily be a full-time DH or a full-time first baseman. Do you think the Orioles have a particular advantage because the right field of Cannon Yards is so short? Certainly doesn't hurt. I mean... While that's true, I mean, you know, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have some areas, you know, no matter what traveling that he's gonna have to cover. Plus, I mean, so many teams can do so much to hide inadequacies in fielders with positioning, and teams absolutely do this. You see players checking their cards to know, you know, five steps in and three to the left or to the right or five back or however many. And so a lot of deficiencies that would have been evident 15, 20 years ago or more damaging 15, 20 years ago, they can at least be mitigated a little bit. And that is certainly the case with Kerstad. He's not, he's not, as my dad would describe some players, he's not running like an ice truck out there. He actually can move a bit. And I doubt we see any balls hit off the top of his head. <laughs> True. Um, so that's our top 30 prospect list. Um, it shouldn't come as any surprise that Adley Rutzman obviously holds on to the number one spot. Um, for the whole list, visit BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com and uh, let us know what you think by tweeting at us at, at BSL on the Verge or jumping on the Baltimore Sports and Life message board. Um, now, though, we're going to move on to next year's draft. Um, obviously, we're a long way out from the draft, and we don't know yet if the ongoing coronavirus pandemic is going to affect the 2021 major league and college and high school seasons. Um, but we're going to go ahead and take a shot at discussing some of the 
big names to watch for 2021 and what the Orioles draft strategy might look like. Uh, right now, one of the consensus top prospects in the draft, if not the consensus top prospect in the draft, is Kumar Rocker, a uh, right-hander out of Vanderbilt, who in 2018 was um, a highly touted prospect out of high school, uh, fell to the 38th round because of signability concerns, where he was taken by the Rockies and ultimately did not sign. Um, Steven, what are your thoughts on the 2021 class, and do you think Rocker is at the top of that class? He's absolutely at the top. I mean, you look at him, you know, there, there's always going to be concerns with pitchers because, I mean, there's so much variability, so much injury risk with pitchers, but he's everything you could possibly want at number one. You're looking at, you know, a power fastball, power slider combination that just works so well in today's game. We're talking fastballs in the high 90s, plus slider, mid, um, mid-upper 80s sort of thing. It's a body that can stand up to that hard workload. You know, he's striking out 10 batters per nine innings, ERA under three. And I mean, he's shown up in big games. I mean, he threw a no hitter in the super regionals against Duke. And I mean, it's everything that you would hope to see at the top of the profile. Now he has a teammate that is going to push him in Jack Leiter, who also, you know, striking out even more batters with a lower ERA, but it's, as even with that, even with that statistical sort of advantage, um, Rocker really is that, I would still say, consensus number one. He's just It's just everything that you like to see out of a college pitcher. You know, right now, it's, it's as I said early, to figure out, but I would have to imagine that if the Orioles drafted a pitcher with Rocker's profile, you're looking at someone who could become the top pitching prospect in the farm system. Um, maybe give Adley Rutzman a run for that number one spot, depending on where things are next year. Um, if Rocker does end up being that player, how do you see him fitting into the system, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm more concerned about what's going to happen to Orioles fans if we have the number one pick. We don't draft Kumar Rocker, um, but. No, I mean, I, I was hoping the Orioles were going to go get one of these high-profile pitching prospects, you know, like started day two this year with like a guy like Cole Wilcox sitting there. I thought for sure the Orioles were going to take him, uh, and they did it. But, you know, this is something that if you can get Kumar Rocker or Jack Leiter, I, I love Jack Leiter personally. I watched him. I didn't get to watch too much baseball, this college baseball, before the shutdown, but I felt like every every day it was Vanderbilt was on TV, and it just felt like, Jack Leiter was, was always on the mound there. Um, but I lo- enjoy watching both of these guys so much. And if the Orioles are able to grab either one of them and they become the top pitching prospect in this farm system, um, I mean, you're taking this farm system now definitely to top 10, one of the top farm systems in, in the whole league. And, and now the Orioles are really cooking with something. And, and I imagine both these guys would be pretty fast risers too. Uh, I don't think they would spend too much time in the minor leagues. So they could probably match up pretty well with joining you know, Adley Rutschman and Heston Kerstad up in the major leagues and probably uh, match Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall get into the major leagues. So it, it would all start to come together. And so, you know, World Series 2023. Yeah. Even Michael Elias can't pass up Kumar Rocker at number one. I mean, he's, he's too good. I think <laughs> if you have a top two pick, you take either Rocker or if you pick second, you take Rocker, Lighter, whichever one drops to two. It does get interesting. If we're picking number three, you gotta think Matt McLean, shortstop out of SEC and LSU, has got to be the favorite at that point. Just fits the criteria. 
I, I don't know. Uh, Michael Ice has definitely shown the propensity to be able to p- pass up a seemingly consensus sort of pick. And I agree, Rocker and Lighter seem to be clearly that. But the top high school player in this draft is interesting and seems like the type of guy that uh, Elias might like. So Brady House, he's a shortstop and a right-handed pitcher. He throws in the mid-90s as a right-handed pitcher, and his ceiling is higher as a shortstop. So, I mean, that's saying something right there. I mean, once again, he's a high schooler, and he's already 6'4", 210, like, you know, fitting that same sort of Kobe Mayo sort of profile. Granted, he's a shortstop right now. He's probably not going to stay there. He's the type that honestly um, would probably have to shift over to third base, admittedly. But, you know... His hands still work well enough to stay in the infield, to stay at third base, but he's a physically mature high schooler who can, um, you know, has a nice swing, generates a lot of power for, you know, he's not really getting a deep load in his swing. It's not overdoing it, overselling for power, but he's still able to generate that plus power. And that's the type of guy that if there's someone they like at 36, say, you know, right around where where our second round pick would be, They'd absolutely cut a deal with uh, someone who could, uh, again, be a 30 home run or even more shortstop or third baseman, depending on how things turn out. It brings up an interesting point, Stephen, because it would seem like drafting Lighter or Rocker at the top would go against what we've seen so far under Michael Elias, which is that priority on college bats. Um, Do you think that we're going to see that again next year, or do you think that because of the 2021 class— the Orioles are going to have to take a little bit different approach. I don't think they have to take a different approach. I mean, a lot of times front offices will develop their strategy that ultimately works for them. And it's seeming like that's what Elias is moving towards. But that said, I mean, even though House is an interesting sort of prospect and any other year could easily be in that discussion, unless something changes and something goes wrong, you know, Rocker and Lighter are the type of guys that could make Elias think twice about this strategy that he's going. And honestly, they might be the only two that could make him think twice about it. So I'm going to throw this out for uh, all three of you, and I'll weigh in some prediction myself. Where do the Orioles draft next year? I'll start with you, Bob. I think first. I think we have the hardest schedule in Major League Baseball. I think that's correct. 40 games against the AL East and 20 games against the NL East. Our best player, Trey Mancini's out for the year, unfortunately. It's going to be rough. <laughs> Our prospects aren't quite ready to make an impact yet, especially in the shortened season. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I would bet the under on that 19-game mark <laughs> that uh, I think Fangraphs put out there. Yeah. I think uh, I think the Orioles Marlins series are going to be a series <laughs> of the year to watch. If you're an Orioles fan, yes. uh, you know. Uh, I I would probably say number one as well, only because, you know, based on that initial roster release, the the roster pool, you know, it doesn't see no prospects were on it, and it doesn't seem like Mike Lyce is going to be in any rush to bring up even Ryan Mountcastle or Keegan Aiken. Um, so I think he's going to roll with you know the. He's going to roll with the Ray LeBlancs and Tommy Malones, and and we're probably going to see Luis Ortiz, the not the good Luis Ortiz, as a uh, back <laughs> on the mound again with you know walking nine guys in the first two innings, and just to give him another chance, you know, I, 
I can't watch any more Luis Ortiz pitch. I, that's, I don't know why it just irks me so much. But I, that's what we're going to see for a little bit. You know, We're probably going to see Cedric Mullins take another stab at center field or in the outfield. We're probably going to see Mason Williams again. Uh, you know, I don't see. I, I was thinking this year, if anything, that that three batter minimum. You know, if that's going to be in place this year, you know, this could have been a really good opportunity, maybe to bring up guys like Lowther and Aiken and and say, look, can, can you succeed in this role? You know, next year when we're putting the roster together, do we want a guy like Paul Fry or the Eric Handholds, those types of relievers who may struggle to get through one inning? When we got guys like Lowther, Aiken, who have more than two pitches, Wells, Zimmerman, we know they can go that one inning. Uh, there are left, a lot of lefties in that bunch. Faster path to the major leagues for them, but we're not going to see that again this year. So, yeah, I'm going to say first pick. I'm going to be the contrarian and just going to say that somehow we're going to pick third. I don't know how. Somehow we're just going <laughs> to pick third. Just the short season, the starting the runner on second base in the extra innings, we're going to somehow squeeze out 21 wins. The Marlins will squeeze out you know, 18. And I don't know who's going to hit 19 wins, but we're going to wind up picking third I somehow. I can see it. I will say that I think in a 60-game season, you are going to see a lot of bad baseball from other teams. You know, I don't think if you're a Tigers or Royals or Marlins fan or probably even a Mariners fan, there's a lot to look forward to this year. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go with first just because I do think that the Orioles have a tougher schedule than those teams. Um, I think that there's enough bad baseball in the two West divisions that the Mariners somehow won't get that top spot. Um, the Central, you know, the Tigers and Royals might get beat up by some of the teams in the AL and the NL Central. But I think those divisions together are still a little bit easier than the East where I think the Orioles and the Marlins are really only the only truly bad teams. I'm not that high on the Red Sox. I'm not that high on the Mets, but I can't say they're terrible teams. So my sense is that the Orioles are going to pick number one. But again, with the points that Steven brought up, don't be surprised if somehow two or three one run games go the Orioles way and that ends up making the difference. Yeah, and the Orioles get lucky, and coronavirus doesn't strike, and <laughs> we're the only healthy team standing. And next thing you know, we're in third place Champs. in the AL East. <laughs> and Chris Davis hits eighty home runs in sixty games. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fourth down, and there's going to be five teams looking to punt, so that could be interesting. Yeah. So I'll um we'll close out the draft talk with this, Stephen. Who are some of the names that could rise toward the top of the class beyond Rocker, Lighter, and House? Okay, so there's, you know, I focused most of my looking in terms of uh, college bats because, again, that's where the Orioles seem to be focused uh, in these past couple of drafts. So there are a couple of interesting guys that kind of fit the Orioles' profile of who cares about strikeouts and power. So we have Alex Benellis at uh, Louisville. Uh, lefty, third baseman, probably going to have to switch to first base. Um, not a horrible walk rate by some of our picks recently, you know, walking about 11% of the time. Striking out, you know, upper teens, so not surprising there. Still a lot of power, an ISO of 332, which is, you know, right around where Kerstad and Torkelson were. Um, has a bit of a wide stance, but, you know, is able to generate a lot of power again despite not really selling out for it in his uh, swing 
If you want to go small college, uh, Ethan Wilson out of South Alabama, same sort of thing. I tell you, a video is hard to come by for him or any sort of quality video. But um, the power looks good out of the left side of the batter's box. You know, nice, fairly quiet swing. You know, not too many hitches or anything like that. And he's, you know, small conferences and all that. But again, 12% walk rate, 20% strikeout rate, and an ISO above 300. So, you know, same sort of profile. And then not as much power, but larger conference SEC. You know, the Orioles like that. And someone who's had a lot more talk about him, Judd Fabian. So center fielder out of Florida, righty, um, ISO close to 200. Um, again, strike out, strikes out a lot, walks a lot. Very good chance to at least stick in center field. And one thing that analytics, analytical models generally like, he's really young. He's going to be under 21 years old ultimately when he's drafted. So there's a lot there that analytical teams will like, and especially if he, um, you know, he's a smaller guy, but if you believe in the power, which he generates usually with a fairly deep load, a long swing, which means, again, there will be strikeouts, but if you believe in that power and his ability to stick in center field, he could be a riser if he starts performing next year. Um, one thing I will note as we close out here, um, the minor league baseball season was officially canceled earlier this week. Um, did not come as a surprise if you've been listening to our shows or you know, reading other uh, reports about what was going to happen this year, the minor league season was expected to be canceled. That said, we are, although we are a prospect-focused podcast, we are going to continue to record regularly during the season. Bob, Nick, and I will be on uh, quite often over the summer to discuss mainly younger players um, and their performance at the major league level. And while I don't know that we're going to learn a lot about what goes on with taxi squads this year, if there are, is there, if there is information that's coming out, we will certainly discuss it. So, keep looking for new episodes. Follow us on Twitter at, at @bsl on the birds. Visit BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Hop on the message board. Uh, starting with our top 30 prospects and look at our other content on the site. Um, thank you to Stephen for joining us again um, and helping us with the top 30 list and giving us a preview on next year's draft. Uh, for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. Thank you for listening.